And good afternoon. Thank you for joining me for Business, the Law and You. Julian Campbell here. We've got another interesting show lined up for you this week. A bit later in the program, we'll have a couple of our Harvard Business Review tips. This one is to have more aha moments. We're also talking with Christina with her Minute on Innovation, talking about design thinking. But right now, we're going to cross over for our monthly chat with Tony Vidray from AV Chartered Accountants. Good afternoon, Tony. Good afternoon, Julian. Is this your aha moment? What, joining to you? Oh, I, thought we were, I thought we were talking about Norwegian bands of the 80s or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> oh, I suppose, well, that's your th- uh, Wednesday night show, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, something like that. Something like that. Take on me. I remember that. <laughs> All right, so we, we're going to have an interesting chat about your home and capital gains tax this afternoon. Yes, I think uh, this usually happens whenever there's a spike in the uh, in the the price of properties. Everyone gets a little bit excited about how much money they can make from uh, from from properties. And the ATO are quick to remind people that um, that they're there to uh, take a little bit of a slice of the action if the uh, if the case may be. And I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that the uh, the family home. Um, is um, is you know when we sell it, you live in it, you sell it, um, that it's 100% tax free, and that's not always the case. There's lots of little ways where the ATO can uh, can deem some of the capital gain that is made from the sale of the uh, of the family home, the principal place of res- residence (PPR), if I can use that uh, acronym, um, where they say it's not um, 100% tax free, and they'll take a slice of the. Um, of the action, so I thought we'd talk about that today a little bit. So, so one of them is uh, living in it for a while, and then moving out, and then renting it. Yeah. So, with um, with the way uh, property prices have moved, there, there seems to be a lot of movement at the station where people have decided to uh, um, to to move into bigger premises or you know upsize or whatever. But they've hung onto their the house that they've lived in. So, let's just use an example that uh, you buy a house, you live in it for four years. You decide to move out, go and move into another house. So if you move into another house, you can't have that PPR exemption on two consecutive properties at the same time, unless there are some circumstances around divorce and living away from living apart. Um, there are some extreme examples in that. But let's just say that um, you rent that house for a year, so you've owned it for five years, um, and then you decide to sell it. So there's, there's some interesting rules around that. And and what used to happen was it was on. It used to be based on a straight. Um, time basis. So you've lived in it for four years out of five, so 80% of the capital gain is tax-free, 20% of the capital gain that you make is is assessable. Now, that's no longer the case. So quite a few years ago, the ATO brought in a rule because they realised that the record-keeping was quite difficult because whilst you're living in your house and you don't have any intentions of moving out, you're not going to keep a lot of receipts on you know, doing that mm. retaining wall and, and you know, putting a concrete pad down and building the Taj Mahal chicken coop and all those sort of, um, all those sort of things. You're never going to keep all those receipts. But then all of a sudden, um, you know, in that circumstance I just mentioned where uh, under the old law where 20% of the capital gain um, is going to be assessed, then, then all of a sudden it does become um, important. important. So, so to relieve a lot of the, the record-keeping, what the ATO introduced a number of years ago was in that example, in year four, when you decide to move out, um, get a valuation done on the property at that time. That becomes your starting point. Okay. So if there's a spike, if you've bought something for you know 400000 and it's now worth 900000 because um, that's how prices have gone um, recently, mm. then your starting point for capital gains tax is 900000 from in that example. So if you sell it after a year, um, then you know whatever capital gain you make over and above the 900000 is what is what is assessable. Mm. So, 
And there's also, there's also, without complicating things too much, but you can make certain election to say, well, look, even though I live in property B, I still want to treat that property A as my principal place of residence up to, up to six years. So you've got a few um, different options, and depending on which property is going to give you the, the larger gain and the one that you want to treat as exempt. But certainly, if, you get, if you're in that position, get some advice on it, because... It's really important to get um, have that right. documentation in place. Yeah, and and similarly, if I've I've got a property with maybe a large block and I want to subdivide it and sell it off. Yeah, this is the area where the ATO are pretty um, active on, and and if you um, if you believe in in Big Brother and and <laughs> we certainly have this. Um, flow of information amongst all of the government agency. The ATO have got to tap into all the local councils. They can see properties that are that are buying, that have been bought and sold. Um, they've got tap-ins to the uh, land titles office. They know how much these have been sold for. So subdividing of property is an interesting one because, and again, let's let's do an example. Um, again, prices have spiked. You might have an old couple that lives on a quite a large, say, fifteen hundred square metre block, and they decide to carve off um, six hundred. Um, square metres off to the side and sell it to someone else who who might put a you know driveway in and, and build a house on it. Now the myth is that that is tax free. Mm. Um, the reason is that the you know mum and dad have bought the the house, they've lived in it the entire time. All they're doing is just selling off part of it. Now that, that's that's a, it's actually a myth. And the the problem is that the principal place of residence exemption. If you if you look at those words, the reason that it's tax-free is that there is a place of residence on the block that is being sold. Mm. So the moment you carve a, a small part off and sell it off, that principal place of residence no longer no longer um, applies. Okay. It is subject to capital gains tax. So, it, and if that's all you're doing, if that's you're just merely realising an asset, so it's certainly not on income account, it's definitely on, on capital account, but unless you've bought it pre-85, um, if you've bought it after 1985, you will have some tax on that on, on that part that you've um, cut off. That, that you've carved off. And then it becomes a question, well, how much tax do I pay on it? What cost is there? So you've got to go back to when you purchased it and do a proper apportionment between the land and the building and square metres. And, yeah, again, get some advice on it because it becomes, it becomes uh, quite complicated. But don't think that it, it's tax-free because... Um, because it's not. What, what about uh, the uh, running of a business at home? Yeah, that complicates things as well. Mm. Um, and let's let's use a, a hairdressing salon because there's a lot of people um, that I've noticed who run hairdressing salons from home. So, so when you when you've actually got a principal play, a, a principal business from um, from your home where it's separate, it's distinct. Um, it's it's a, you know you set up a studio, you've got a lot of trouble of putting in you know sinks and hair dryers and all that sort of stuff. Then all of a sudden, you've you've changed that 100% tax-free status of the home. It's no longer your principal place of residence. You're running a business from it, so therefore, all of a sudden, you become entitled to some tax deductions. Because yeah. if, and again, let's just do a square uh, meter yeah, basis, and, and I'll, I'll pick a figure. Let's say that it's 25% of the of the total square meterage of the of the property. Well, all of a sudden, you become entitled to be to be to be able to claim. 25% of the interest that you pay to the bank, 25% of the rates, um, the water usage, all that, 25% of the insurances. But the downside, of course, is when you go to sell the property, 
You've attracted capital gains tax. You've attracted capital gains tax on mm. 25%. And, and, and it becomes a calculation of percentages of percentages because if you've, let's, you know, let's say you've owned it for 10 years and you ran the hairdressing salon out of it for five years, then it's half of it. You've got to do all these um, pro-rata calculations. But you, yes, it's, it's, a, it's a classic cake, a case of you can't have your cake and eat it too. <laughs> I, I can see the obvious one with like setting up a, a hairdressing salon because you've made some changes to the property but if you're just using a they say the third bedroom for an office uh, you know when you move out it's just a third bedroom again it's just a third bedroom again yeah look there's some gray areas around that i know what the tax office will say that it's, yes, it's I know. Really, well <laughs> again they well uh, let, let's flip it around the other way you, they can't have their cake and, and eat it too as well because in those circumstances they say and, and the, let's use my circumstance say i've got a, a, a room that's set aside um, for, to work from home because, you know, we're accountants, we're flogged to death, we work 60 hours a week and I've got to take oh. work home and all that oh, sort of yeah. stuff. Yeah, get, get the tiny violins out. Um, so what they say to me is that, look, look, you're, you're actually operating from home as out of convenience, not out of necessity. You've got an office, you can okay. go to the office, you can operate out of the office. Um, you're not operating out of your home as, as a matter of necessity. Now, compare that to... You know, someone who works for a large company and, you know, who might be on the road, a salesperson, where they say to him, um, look, we don't have space for you here in head office. Um, you, you'll need to operate from home. So all of a sudden they operate out of home out of necessity. They've got nowhere else to, um, to operate out of. So in the first circumstance where it's out of just convenience, well, at the end of the day, if it's out of convenience and I'm not allowed to claim my rates and interest and insurances... You're not um, going to pay capital gains. I'm not paying capital gains, yeah. <laughs> capital gains out of the out of the uh, the sale of that property as well. So mm. yeah, so you got it's a it's a question of consistency throughout. You know, um, you know throughout what your intention is, what you're doing along along the lines in your returns and evidence along the way, keeping records of of um, you know what, you what you've actually done out of properties out of out of certain ways. And and it, it, next, I thought next month we'd talk about a very interesting scenario, and this is the one. The tax office are really, really honing in on, and that is the one-off speculator, the transaction. You know, I'll buy a block of dirt, I'll build a house on it, or build a small set of units on it, and, then sell, and, it. and sell it off. And um, and and how how your intentions from the very, very start dictate um, what happens from a GST perspective, what happens from a capital gains perspective, what happens from an income income perspective because they're, they're, again there's people that are doing those sort of things yeah great look forward to it we'll have a chat with you again next month okay always a pleasure you have a great month thank you thanks julian bye-bye Tony Vidray there, AV Chartered Accountants. just be aware of that capital gains tax uh, and uh, I think as uh, Tony said get advice if you need it time to have a chat with Christina good afternoon Christina Good afternoon, Julian. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Um, we're going to talk about design thinking. Yeah, because it's been coming up a lot in um, media and I've noticed it flash up on my uh, screen quite a fair bit um, with articles about design thinking and how design thinking is a, is a strong principle to work from. So I think after something like 20-odd years, design thinking is actually coming into its own. So it's actually taken longer than that 10-year success um, story, Julian, but at least it's, it's here. So what, what is design thinking? Well, believe it or not, it's going to sound very basic when I tell you exactly what it is, but all it really means is coming at things from a human-centric, a customer-centric perspective. So what we do is we ask, what does a human need in all of this? And we observe humans and find out where the pain points are. So 
you would think it would be intrinsic to business, but at some point we lost sight. Once upon a time, business did used to be very customer-centric and it was all about the customer and the customer was always right. Uh, and somehow we moved away into into more how do we make more profit out of a product, how do, you know, things became automated. Um, we lost people at, at checkouts and things like that. We lost people off service floors um, in retail, for example. Yeah. But what we're, what we're doing now is we're coming back to a customer-centric perspective. It's very much design-driven. Uh, so it, it comes all the way back to how do you design the product, the website, the process, whatever it is in the first place. Um, but, but even before that, for me, it comes to where do you identify a pain point for your client or where do you identify a, a, plain, a pain point in society? So, for example, I know we mentioned a couple of weeks ago Jennifer Holland winning the Edison Award mm. um, and the pain point she identified was a, a, um, something she experienced when she had her child on her lap, had to hold her child's arms, while the doctor, you know, went down the, the child's throat with a yeah, with the with the um, torch and the depressor, so she went, got to be a better way. There's a pain point. So and now what's happening? So the children that are actually um, being uh, inspected with throat scopes are, are finding it to be quite fun. They're uh, they're equating it to a lightsaber. So mm. it's all about human centred experience. So where if you notice a client's face grimace, if you notice somebody reading a website or, or using an app and their face kind of gets that screwed up, I don't know where to go to, you know, that's very familiar for me anyway. Mm. Um, you know, look about it. You go, there is a problem that can be solved. And most of the innovations that are happening now are problems that are being solved. So people are recognising pain points uh, and they're, they're coming up with solutions to those pain points. So the first thing is to actually recognise the human-centric in it and to recognise where the pain point might be. Then the ideation comes in. So it's like, how do we fix this? How do we go about how How can we look at this problem potentially from a different perspective as well? So sometimes one of the beauties of design thinking is that you flip the question. You know, so it doesn't become, um, you know, that old cliche, how we, need to, we need to drill a quarter-inch hole. You flip the question to say, why do we want that quarter-inch hole? What is the purpose of that quarter-inch hole? And is there a way we can solve the problem from that perspective mm -hmm. rather than go, we've got nothing to drill a quarter-inch hole with, you know? So it, it's just a, a flip in perspective sometimes. Um, and so after you ideate, of course, then you have to test something. All these steps are quite, they should be quite natural in, yeah. the, in the development process. But design thinking, I guess, has put it all into a, um, into a, a, a formula that can be followed so that people know where to go with it. So you test the product. Now, a lot of the times, if a product doesn't work, what used to happen is people went, oh, well, that's no good. Try something it out. else. What's the next study? Yeah. What we encourage with design thinking is test it and change it, adapt it. So wherever you find the pain point in the process that you're now creating and you find there's a pain point there, how, do you, how can you change that? How can you adapt it? Rather than scrap the whole idea, but the other beauty of design thinking and the processes that are involved is that you can do this rather quickly. So you don't have to spend lots of money and you don't have to spend lots of time it's a process if followed properly and you know if followed by a potential group the other beauty talking about groups of design thinking is it invites diversity right. so it invites diverse people in the group you know mix it up as much as you can gender um you know nationality a particularly profession so mm. have the have the doctor in there with the engineer with the musician with the scientist so that everybody's coming at the same problem but with a different viewpoint. Great. Well, thanks very much for your time, Christina, and uh, you're off to the States next week, so have a safe trip, 
And Thank you, Julian. we'll have a chat with you when you come back, uh, particularly you as we'll, we'll have Jennifer Holland with uh, Throscope on the radio. Yep, looking very much forward to it. I'll, um, I'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Christina there with design thinking. Sometimes it's uh, common sense, but we don't always see the common sense, do we? Time for one of our Harvard Business Review tips to have more aha moments. Find solitude. Have you ever had a brilliant idea while taking a shower or knitting or working out? Aha moments tend to pop up when our minds are quiet and our consciousness is at rest. You can nurture these moments by creating an environment of silence and solitude. No matter how busy you are, do your best to take breaks between meetings and find some time alone. Go to an empty conference room or even a better, leave the office and take a walk outside. Once you've reached a quiet spot, ignore what's going on around you and focus on your inner thoughts. Put your mind on airplane sorry, put your phone on airplane mode to completely disconnect for a block of time. This will allow you your mind to truly wander so your brain won't miss the next light bulb moment when it happens. And they do say we all see a million dollar idea every every day. Sometimes we just don't see it. Well, thank you for being with me for the last half hour. We, I hope you've enjoyed the program. We've looked at uh, capital gains tax with relation to your home, a little bit of design thinking there. In a moment, John Slaven will be back with you with more of your easy listening favourites. Next week, uh, as we know, Christina won't be there, but uh, we'll find out about a new program for starting a business with Alira Aitchison from New Hunter Business, and we'll have some more business and legal news and views that might affect your business. I'd love your company again for Business, the Law and You at the same time next week. Until then, have an exciting and prosperous week. And as Michael Buback once said, all progress takes place outside the comfort zone. Thanks for listening to this podcast from 2NURFM at the University of Newcastle. Topics range from gardening to health, well-being, pet care, finance, business and travel. You'll find them all at 2NURFM.com.